We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. It's good to see you all this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, either here or online, we want to say a warm welcome to you and trust that you'll find uh, some new friends here. Uh, If you're online, well, we'd love to uh, hear about that from you. If you want to send us a message or something, just let us know and it's always nice to hear of uh, folks participating with us. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you turn them to Proverbs 26, please? We continue uh, to uh, read the scriptures together, and we're in Proverbs 26. Remember, the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It's general aphorisms, if you will, divinely inspired, not just uh, little one-liners that are clever that men have uh, cooked up, but uh, God put them here in the book for us. And uh, they cause us to stop and think, although we don't have time in our service this morning to uh, stop and think after each one. Uh, That'd be for another time as we would have opportunity to do some exposition here in the 26th or in any of these uh, Proverbs. But listen as uh, we read here. 26 of Proverbs. As snow in summer and rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. A whip for a horse, and a bridle for a donkey, and a rod for the fool's back. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. There's a little bit of an enigma, but if you think about it, you might be able to untangle that. I could help you untangle that sometime if you want. Verse 6, he who sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence like the legs of the lame that hang limp is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds a stone in a sling is he who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. The great God who formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. What grace that is, isn't it? As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The lazy man says, there is a lion in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets. In other words, there's really, he, he, he sees everything as a risk. There's no way to convince him that uh, he ought to overcome his laziness because he makes excuses all the time. There's some risk I can't take. There's going to be a lion out there. Uh, Doesn't think that he could take the means to defend himself or or maybe the percentage chances that there is a lion out there is very small, that sort of thing. Verse 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. 
The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. That's one of the perverse things about sin. It's blinding. It causes self-deception, and the people who are thus, thus deceived think themselves wise when they are actually fools. Yeah. Just be observant of that in your own life when sin blinds you or deceives you, causes you to rationalize it. Verse 17, he who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no tail bearer, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a tale-bearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost body. Fervent lips with a wicked heart are like earthenware covered with silver dross. He who hates disguises it with his lips and lays up deceit within himself. When he speaks kindly, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it rolled back on him. A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. I pray we get wisdom from God's Word today. Let's take our Bibles uh, this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 6, please. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we have a couple on the back center table there. Jansen, who's at that table, can help you to grab one of those Bibles, and uh, we'd love to have you uh, borrow one of those. And if you don't have one, why, you just uh, let us know, and we'll make sure that you get one at no cost to you. Because the Word of God is the most important book ever written. Actually, it's the most important 66 books ever written, compiled into one codex for us conveniently here in uh, Genesis through Revelation. And it is, as some even secular scholar recently said, interestingly enough, the precondition for all truth. It is uh, more than truth. It is that which is, that sets the kind of stage, if you will, for all truth to come. We're in Genesis chapter 6. We've looked at the beginnings of the creation of the world. Uh, <clears throat> if you are a professing Christian who says, I believe the Bible, then you ought to believe also. You should, although some don't, but you should believe the account of creation from uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and uh, in the early history of the world up through, especially chapter 12. Uh, that has been clouded by uh, secular and religious scholars who have debated and doubted the veracity of Scripture here. But we have the account of the only eyewitness to the creation, that is God himself, uh, written through uh, his servant Moses, and then uh, perhaps uh, not only uh, his account, but also passed down through history to Moses, 
uh, by oral tradition or even written tradition, we don't know, but uh, some of this uh, was um, passed down somehow or given by God directly to Moses, and he wrote it down here in these books for us. <clears throat> we saw the beginnings of the world in chapters 1 and 2, uh, the beginning of the creation of mankind. We saw the entrance of sin into the world and death through sin. We saw even the beginnings of uh, human religion in chapter 4, but also the first murder in chapter 4. And uh, sadly, we see that repeated over and over again in this world uh, of uh, sin in which we find ourselves. Um, <clears throat> chapter 5, we spent quite some time on last week looking at the uh, genealogical information that's there. We uh, made the case that that is a chronological genealogy or chronogenealogy. It has numbers in it of years uh, with the purpose of giving us a rough time scale of how long these events occurred from the beginning of creation up until the flood. And if you look at the spreadsheet that I put on the church website for you there, 1,656 years. Some doubt that. Some suggest that it's somewhat more than that. Fine, we're not going to get into a big debate about the exact number of years, but it's something on that order. It's not millions of years. It's not tens of thousands of years. It's a very short, relatively short amount of time. But in that time, the earth was very fertile. The uh, people multiplied greatly on the earth. Uh, the great longevity of people allowed them to bear children for a very long time and many children. And so uh, we had a very, a, a really a population explosion that occurred. And besides all of that, you had all of the kind of natural things that God created, the animal life, the plant life that just covered the globe. The globe was not a Sahara desert when God was done creating it. It was a veritable greenhouse of living matter. And I believe that um, a lot of that living matter was jumbled up during the flood, which we're going to start to see about here, and um, compressed and heated and turned into what we know as fossil fuels today. And that's where the vast store of fossil fuels come from. Uh, in, in fact, they're still being created uh, under in the deep parts of the earth yet today. That has been uh, uh, mentioned in, uh, in uh, scientific literature, but that's not our point today. It's just to say, you know, what we, what we have going on today actually connects us back to that history. I mean, where else would all of that living material have come from in these very conveniently placed locations that we can just dig down or frack across or whatever and get, you know, the, the methane gas and, the, and all of that stuff that's down there. It's as if God used the judgment on the world to provide for the energy that the world would later need in order to prosper as we do now. And uh, I'd love to talk about that sometime with regard to some of the things that are being talked about today, but we're not going there this morning. We're going to go to chapter 6. It says in chapter 6, the following words, now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the, son, <clears throat> that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Well, there's nothing surprising about that now, is there? I heard my voice. Okay, somebody's, somebody's playing the live stream or something. Um, it says in verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. 
There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So men began to multiply. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, verse 2. Then we have the sons of God again. We have the giants and all of this. I'll try to explain that in just a moment. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is an indication of the extent or expression of the depravity of man's heart that was just running rampant throughout the earth. People did that which is right in their own eyes. We see that today. I don't know that I could say today is, is any better or much worse than what it was then. It was bad, and it's bad now. And um, every time you think it's bad, then it gets worse. Um, Jose, okay, where are we? So he was, uh, verse 6, And the Lord was very sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now we're going to look at this flood account in the next chapter, 7, 8, and 9. And um, we're, I'm going to just say right now, we believe that that occurred the way that the Bible writes about it. Okay, uh, Of course, brother, except that there are many people who don't believe it. And it's a sad shameful thing that that is the case. We're not going to apologize about it. We see the evidence of it everywhere. You go visit the Grand Canyon, I think that's an evidence of the flood of Noah's day. You see all kinds of topographical features and, and uh, uplift of sediment layers and bent sediment layers and all kinds of things. You study the geology of it, you know, talk to the ICR people or Answers in Genesis, and they have all kinds of great information about this. The, this, the, the, the deal is this, we all have the same data we're looking at. Secular scientists, Christian people who are scientists, all have the same data. We come from a different perspective of, of um, interpretation. And we look at it in the lens of this that God has done, and we come out with different answers than the secular scientists do because they're committed to not this. Okay? They're committed to not this. Whatever not this is, they don't care, but as long as it doesn't have God and there's not accountability for their sins and they don't have to deal with all of that, then they come up with an answer that uh, you know, to them satisfies their mental, uh, their, their thinking, their logic, their rationality, but it's not satisfactory uh, to us at all because it ignores this, this very important eyewitness account and historical document. There's some controversy here in the verse, first four verses of the chapter. I'll just deal with that. We try to address everything we can, uh, at least in some uh, short fashion uh, here in our exposition of this text of Scripture. And uh, we immediately come to this portion where there's questions about giants and men of renown and sons of God and angels and, and demons and all of these things. Um, on, the, on the issue of giants... Some people think, well, that's pretty fanciful or, you know, you, you know, can see kind of documentaries that never come to the conclusion that there are giants and you're always searching for them, the skeletons and all that sort of thing. The reality is that there have been people with giantism that we know about. I mean, there are some that play in the NBA today, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the notes at the 
backside or the appendix, the bottom of the notes there at the end, maybe it's page uh, seven or eight for you, have an account that is uh, recorded in the Guinness Book of World Records of uh, Mr. Wadlow, who was like eight feet 11 and change and had uh, humongous hands and feet. Unfortunately died when he was, I think, 22 years old uh, from septic shock, uh, septic uh, infection rather, because uh, of a brace that he had to have to help hold him up uh, that was ill-fitted, and uh, within a week he was gone. So uh, careful if you have to have braces or orthotics, get them right, because a little infection can go a long way unfortunately for him. But he had a a pituitary problem, they suspect, which caused him to never stop growing, kind of like uh, reptiles, you know, they just keep getting bigger and bigger. Well, this was a a curse, actually, on him, because after a while, you can't find clothing, you can't hardly move around. I mean, he's almost nine feet tall. Uh, He towers over everything and everybody. And um, so we know that that's that's, that's a case. I mean, you have photographic you know, proof of it and eyewitness evidence. And there are plenty of others, we believe, over the course of history that uh, reached a great size. The Bible records a couple of them. Um, Og is one. Uh, Goliath of Gath is another one. And, and there are others. Um, so that, just set that aside. It's not, you know, it should not be a surprise to us, some of us that grow to five or six feet tall, that somebody could easily grow to seven or eight or nine feet tall or even 10 feet tall or even 12 feet tall. I mean, who knows what the limit is? But um, we're kind of, you know, shrimps compared to some of those folks. Um, And our genetics aren't that good. Maybe in the beginning when the genetics were more pure and there were less... um, mutations, these things could be more frequent. In verses 1 to 4, though, there's a controversy over the identification of the sons of God. And there are several viewpoints on this. A very popular position is that the sons of God were actually angels. And there, I've given the data here mentioned in Jude and Second Peter. And this view arises because angels are sometimes called sons of God. In Job 38, 7, that's the case. And uh, the comparison between this in Genesis 6 and in Jude, verses 6 and 7, the, there's a comparison like, you know, as they did, so these do. Uh, and so it's thought that these angels got involved in sexual immorality with these women and uh, thus created this kind of what I would call, a, a, don't take this the wrong way, but a mongrel race of kind of quasi-human, quasi-angel beings or something. Um, and, and, you know, others, others point to the unusual nature of the giants that resulted from these unions, although uh, some uh, Christians and, and scholars uh, hold to these views, it has some very, very serious problems. Angels do not marry nor procreate. Matthew twenty two thirty says that. Now, someone might object that they're not supposed to marry, but they did anyway in this case. But the fact is that uh, God made these things called kinds, K-I-N-D-S, and between the kinds, there is no cross-breeding of those, and angels are certainly a different sort than humans are. Um, and that's, that's a kind of bedrock principle that we, we go by. Kinds, by the way, we talked about this before, but a kind is not exactly the same thing as a species. There are species that can cross-reproduce, uh, right? But like 
A simple example, if they kind of look like a horse, they're like the horse kind, even though they might be a separate species, one with stripes and one without stripes, they can crossbreed and produce some kind of offspring, maybe even a, a, an infertile offspring or something, a sterile offspring, but whatever. Um, that's what a kind is, kind of above the, the, the species classification in our current bio, biological taxonomy. But another problem is if the, if the fathers are angels, then uh, was there a sin nature passed on to their children? Was Adamic guilt, imputed sin passed on to these kids? A reply you know, from, a, from an advocate of this, you might say, well, these angels were sinners, so they had a sin nature to pass on, but they had no human nature to pass on. So problematic. Finally, uh, look at verse number three. One of the uh, features of this text that I think points us in the direction that we're not talking about angels cohabiting with humans here is verse three where it says, my spirit shall not strive with, doesn't say angels, it says man, okay? It says man, so we're going to leave it at that. Now, some say, well, I can solve that problem, those problems, by saying these, were, these sons of God were demon-possessed men. The, the fallen angels came and dwelt in them, and then they induced them to these unions, and they pr- produced these you know, terrible children or whatever, um, and uh, you know, at least alleviates the problem of, of crossing the kind barrier, uh, and they would be able to produce offspring, the men and the women, demon-possessed men. But it seems in this view that they shouldn't be called sons of God. They would be called sons of Satan or sons of demons or something. So I don't take that view either. Others believe these were godly descendants of Seth, and I, this is part of how, how I understand the text. Uh, remember back in the earlier chapters, men began to call in the name of the Lord after Enosh was born. And uh, Seth is the godly line. There was, you know, people that believed God out of that line. And, of course, that doesn't limit it, limit it to, to the line of Seth biologically or anything. Uh, this deals with the positive name sons of God that ties us back to chapter 4, verse 26, where after Seth, you know, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Um, some would say, well, that's a problem, this view, because how do men who profess to follow God, follow me here, sons of God. How do men who profess to follow God get mixed up with beautiful women? Do I have to even answer that question? You people know the answer to that question. Men and women are always getting themselves in trouble in the world, aren't they? King David, need I say more? A a godly person who had some major issues with women. Solomon? I mean, we don't even, he doesn't even look like he was a person of God until the end when he writes Ecclesiastes again and gets straightened out. Uh, his life is so messed up. So there's no surprise here to ask the question of, of human nature. You know, how do people who were raised godly and even profess faith, you know, see a person who is not in the faith, in this case, men seeing beautiful women or women? Uh, attracted to a man, and they, they just their emotions take them and they go bonkers, and they do stupid things. Uh, people get tripped up all the time when they walk in disobedience in the area of sexual attraction. So no problem really there in my view to see how people in sin uh, you know, get into trouble. 
Others suggest these were dynastic leaders because of their men of renown. I'm not going to go, go there any further. You can read that. Finally, the sons of God may refer to men in general since they are creations of God, and uh, some of them began to call in the name of the Lord. And certainly we want to avoid you know, necessitating that these sons of God were angels. So I take a combination of the sons of Seth, the godly descendants, and the general human view here. These are folks who had some connection to God, had not abandoned him, uh, were at least nominally godly people, but got into trouble here. And um, some of them turned to the Lord, but they also had some temptations. With that out of the way, let's you know, clear our minds and refocus on understanding here that nominally godly men took wives for themselves. They saw they were beautiful and they married them. And verse 3 gives the evaluation of this. My spirit shall not strive uh, with man. Uh, and then later on, everything was going wrong in the world. Um, it seems that these marriages were not pleasing to God. They were part of the downgrade of the culture. Now, let me urge you folks to remember that God's people, even you, even me, are not far from such temptation of the flesh. None of us are, especially when we're young and our facility or ability to, of, of, or cultivation of our self-control has not been done, and we're just kind of hormone-based you know, beings. The instincts, uh, uh, Christian instincts of self-control have not been practiced, and we can get ourselves into big trouble with those of the opposite sex and uh, the temptations that that presents. Using what you see, what does it say here? The sons of men uh, saw, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. Using what you see as the main metric for whom to marry or relate with is a huge mistake. Samson found that out. He saw a beautiful girl. He told his parents, I want her. Get her for me. No end of problems, right? No end of problems. Follow a different template. Instead of, you know, what you see, think of this, you know, gentlemen, young men. She's a woman of excellent character. She's a genuine Christian. She desires to serve the Lord. She's faithful and committed to the idea of marriage for life. Now you're talking my language here, okay? You're talking the Bible's language. Um, or young ladies, you're looking at a fellow and you say to yourself, well, he's a man who wants to be like Christ. He's hardworking. He has skills. He will be able to support a family. He's of good character. He's committed to marriage until death do us part. Thumbs up, okay? Start there and you know, work forward. But if, you're, if you fail on any of those points, get your emotions out of it. Have your parents, you know, help extirpate that bad stuff from your, your, your life and, uh, and say, look, I have got to get my infatuation out of this business and I've got to be thinking objectively here, okay? Very important. Although beauty or good looks are real qualities in the eyes of every beholder, they are not lasting. The scripture says favor is deceitful. 
and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Inner character, my friends, not outward appearance, you know, oh, he's so handsome, or wow, she looks really beautiful. Forget that stuff, okay? Look at the character of a person that you're choosing to spend time with and ultimately live with for the rest of your life. These marital unions in Genesis 6 resulted in giants and otherwise famous people. Uh, We've talked about giants already, so I won't go into that anymore. Drop down to uh, letter D in the notes here. Um, You know, we've, we've... we see the evidence for, for giants, and uh, you can look at other archaeological evidence and things, but these things don't prove the Bible, okay? The Bible doesn't need proving. Now, there may be uh, auxiliary information that helps build our confidence in what we see and, uh, and shows the foolishness of those who, who deny the Scriptures. I, 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 I smile every time they... You know, on the news you see something, oh, archaeologists just dug up something else that shows that this thing in the Bible is actually true. And I say, well, you can keep digging because you're going to find more of it, you know. You're just going to keep finding more of it. Archaeology doesn't prove or disprove the Bible, but it does give us confidence. And that which purports to deny the Scriptures, let it deny. It'll be proven wrong. It's also important to observe In uh, verse 3, the scripture says, My spirit shall not strive with man or rule in man forever, but for 120 years. So what this is is the age of conscience. During this time, uh, up to Noah and then up to the flood, God is ruling in the world through what we call conscience. There's no formal government structure. There's been no divine statement about what government should look like. It just is like, really, every man doing that which is right. So there's probably you know, tribes, clans, family situations, and, and patriarchs and things uh, running their homes as best their conscience guided them. And I, I, I can see that that didn't work out so well because there, was, there were major problems. Now, there's this phrase here in verse 3. It says, his days will be 120 years. What does that mean? Two major interpretations, I think, have been advanced for that. One is the longevity of man would be 120 years, no more. And that would be the idea that this is a general limitation on mankind's age going forward. I don't believe that's correct because the genealogy in Genesis 11 disproves it right off. I mean, the person who lived the shortest amount of time in that, in that genealogy was longer than 120 years. And there were many that were over 200 years or 400 years or so on. So I think that interpretation has to be set aside. Instead, what it means is that in 120 years, God was going to judge the earth. He's going to give another 120 years for people to have an opportunity at His grace He was going to give 120 years for Noah to build an ark, 120 years for Noah, the preacher of righteousness, to invite people to repent of their sin, and after that, then God would pour out judgment on mankind, on humanity. So this gave Noah plenty of time to carry out those functions, but as we see, as we will see in the upcoming chapters, people didn't believe what Noah was preaching. They didn't listen to him. They thought, I'm imagining, they thought he was a nut 
for building this boat, spending all his time doing this, and only after it was too late did they realize, oh, we should have listened to this guy. Verses 5 to 7, we read them. I'll comment on them for a moment. Um, Genesis 1.31 started out by uh, telling us that God saw everything that he made, and it was very good. But what a turnaround has happened. Verse 5, he saw the wickedness of man was great. He was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart, so he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy it. I've got to start over uh, with a godly seed and try to get this thing straightened out. So what about this? Um, you know, did God not foresee this happening? Did he, uh, you know, say, oops, I, I have to kind of redo that project? No, this is best explained as an anthropomorphism or more precisely, slightly more precisely, as an anthropopathism, pathos, the feeling of this. He looks upon it and he sees the utter darkness of hum- the human heart and he says, this is grieving to me. Anthropomorphisms are a man forms attached to God. So God, open your ears to my prayer. Well, God doesn't have ears, okay? Uh, you know, is your arm shortened that it cannot save? Well, he doesn't have an arm, okay? We understand these are phrases that are expressed poetically or metaphorically uh, to, to help us to understand God, okay? Uh, when you're in the hands of God, boy, that's a really great place to be. You're not in a literal hand with five digits on it, but you're in the care of God is how that Means. So the, the pathos here, the, the, the kind of attributing the emotion, emotional state of a person to God, and by the way, since we are made in the image of God, we have the emotions we have because God can have those emotions, and he made us to be somewhat like him, remember, from the image of God. And so the grieved nature that we have when we see wickedness, you know, how, how sick did you feel in your heart in February when... Soviet Union invaded Ukraine, and you could just, oh, it just, you know, the feeling in the pit of your stomach. People are dying for nothing. Or when you think about the travesty of abortion and how people clamor for that sin, and you think, it it makes you sick. That's the pathos that we're talking about. It makes God sick. To see. Who knows if they had abortion back then, crude as it might have been, or immorality of all different kinds, uh, promiscuity, uh, polygamy, polyandry, whatever, perversions of all sorts. And he just said, this is terrible, grieving the creation of mankind. And it just demonstrates how bad sin is in the eyes of God. He was not surprised that this occurred, but to see it in actual operation is another thing than just to like read about it or something. And you see, and it's, it's stupid because the people are only harming themselves. You can't have joy in that. You can't have delight and, and satisfaction ultimately in those kinds of behaviors. Just, it's just awful. Um, it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around how could God know that this was going to happen ahead of time, but he created the world anyway. Well, the only thing I can say at this point to that is that he has a greater and more sophisticated plan than what we can process. And if he is God, that ought to make sense intuitively to you because God is a whole lot smarter than you are. 
you know. I mean, just try to illustrate it. You know, we, we start out in mathematics at 2 plus 2 and, or 1 plus 1, and, you know, we think we're doing, at least guys like me, think we're doing pretty good when we get up to calculus and differential equations in our engineering school. Well, calculus and differential equations is like 1 plus 1 for God, you know. I mean, it's trivial. It's beyond trivial. So we would expect that God and in his infinite intellect in his all omnisapient wisdom would be able to uh, think things that we can't even conceive of. And uh, this way that he's decided to order the universe and how to create this, the vastness of this, you know, web telescope is looking out there farther and farther and seeing all this amazing stuff that God made. You know, God knew about that thousands of years ago. <laughs> he knew about it before that even because he made it. Uh, just amazing. So you might not be able to wrap your mind around it, but you cannot demand that because I cannot understand it, therefore it must not be. That's intellectual arrogance of the highest degree. We are creatures. We are not in charge. Let's humble ourselves. So coming out of this evaluation that God made is his resolve to judge the wickedness of mankind along with the rest of the earth. In verses 8 to 10, though, we have a bright spot. Thank God for bright spots. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The sentence in verse 8 begins with a contrast, a good translation, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, Interesting that he's perfect in his generations. Here's the introduction of a new um, genealogy, if you will, a new uh, section of the book of Genesis. So not everything on the earth was going wrong, only most of it. Here's a man who followed God. He found grace. He was just. He was perfect. He walked with God. Okay, I don't, this doesn't mean that he was sinless. All right? It sounds very wonderful and marvelous. But we see later on in chapter 9 that he had a very egregious uh, kind of sin. Um, but the general pattern of his life was he was a man of God. hope the general pattern of your life is that you are a man or a woman of God. Imperfect as you might be, God still can have this kind of evaluation of your conduct. This sounds, by the way, a lot like Enoch. Remember Enoch? He walked with God. And he pleased God, Hebrews says, because of his faith. I wonder if everyone else today, everyone else, every one of almost 8 billion human beings on the earth today was walking in opposition to God, everybody else but you, would you be walking with God? Would you continue to walk with the Lord? Would I? let that question sink in a little bit. Everybody else is doing it, but not you. You follow Christ. Don't follow them. Noah had these three sons, and uh, just broadly speaking, Shem was the father of the Semitic peoples, Ham the father of Middle Eastern and African peoples, as far as we can tell, and then Japheth, father of, of Europeans and North Asians. Okay, That comes, we get a little more data on that later, but in any case, then God declares judgment in verses 11 through 13. 
And uh, since we didn't read this, let, let me read that. The, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence, restating what we saw before. So God looked up upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So the universality of sin implies, listen carefully, a local flood? No. The universality of sin implies the universality of judgment over the whole earth. We'll see the flood talks about the floodwaters rising above, you know, 20 feet or so above the highest mountains. Well, that can't happen unless it's over the whole earth. And if you doubt there's enough water on the earth to cover the earth, you need to study a little bit more geography. I guess it's called geography, isn't it? Oceanography. I mean, if you just lift up the ocean basins a little bit, some of those very deep mile or more deep ocean basins, lift them up a little bit, where's the water going to go? Oh, my. You know, we're not going to lose a little coastline. We're going to lose the whole thing. Yeah, we're going to be underwater. That's what happened. And the uplift of the mountains that we see today happened after the flood occurred. So you see these giant five-mile-high mountains probably didn't exist during the time of Noah. They were probably much more gentle mountains, and the tectonic action that's driving the plates together is driving up those mountainous regions in some area of the world. So you don't have to think that the water was necessarily five miles deep on the earth could have been much less and still plenty uh, deep to cover the earth and cause every living thing to be destroyed. We'll come again to that. I'm getting ahead of myself here. but um, It's not a local flood. It was a universal flood because of universal sin. Today, evil abounds worldwide as well, doesn't it? But God has promised not to judge the earth with another flood. That's the rainbow promise. The next time, however, there will be a judgment. It will be tribulation and fire, not water. Meanwhile, my friends, I don't want you to look at the earth and just say, well, it's all disposable and uh, don't worry about it and uh, it's all terrible and anything material is bad and I should just get out of here. Don't think about things like that at all. What I want you to think about is this. There are a lot of expressions of God's goodness on this planet, despite the fact that there is a lot of expressions of man's depravity also on this planet. So you take those expressions of God's goodness that we experience and uh, today when you're eating around the table, food on that table, that's God's goodness. He gave to you that. But also remember that in our society in particular, in many societies in the world, there is some measure, very imperfect, but some measure of restraint of sin. Be thankful for that. Bank robbers still do you know, get in trouble most of the time. Okay, uh, murderers are caught some of the time. Um, things like that. Those things are restraints on evil which help the society to flourish. And those are good things. Okay, so we ought to promote those kinds of things as much as we can and be thankful for every expression of God's grace toward the world. Despite the impending judgment, God makes a way to deliver Noah and his family. And he gives them the instructions to build the ark I'll let you read about that because we're about out of time here. Uh, tremendous vessel. If you haven't been down to the Ark Encounter, by the way, you should go and see that because that's a life-size, how can I say, uh, model of it. 
um, and it's, it's tremendous, uh, but easily uh, shows that that was possible to be done. Obviously, it took a lot of work to do that, but to do the, the real original arc, but it certainly was possible, not a fanciful tale. And so then he receives, Noah does uh, instructions to save the land animals in verses 17 to 22. And uh, I always like this at the end of chapter uh, 6 and verse 22. It says, after God told him everything to do, thus Noah did. According to all that God commanded him, so did he. What a breath of fresh air that is. You do everything God commands you to do, just like he says to do it. I pray you do. I pray you believe in him. He commands all men everywhere to repent. He says there's coming a day in which he's going to judge the earth in righteousness. He's going to judge by that man whom he's appointed. And we know that because he raised that man from the dead, Jesus. And you are going to stand before him and give an account of yourself. If you believe in him, he will gladly wash your sins away by his own blood. If you rebel against him, then you'll have to deal with your sins yourself. And that will be a perilous dealing. That is for sure. What we've read here is no fanciful tale. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's actual history. God's evaluation of the earth is very bleak, and it's not much better today. But we, even if all the other 8 billion souls on the planet, almost, are astray, we can be like Noah, walking justly before our God, pleasing him and doing what he commands. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that that will be our portion, that you will help us to walk with you, be like Noah, and recognize, Lord, the depravity that is displayed all around us, certainly not uh, of your desire or uh, hope for the world. It causes you grief, and it causes us grief as well. Bless your people with the understanding of your word in Jesus' name. Amen.